Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. You are listening to Solidarity Chats, a special section of the Contra podcast on disability, design justice, and the life world. These episodes, recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, focus on disability, eugenics, and mutual aid. We're hoping to capture some of the conversations that disabled people and our allies are having about issues such as healthcare infrastructure, medical triage, eugenics, and technology as it is unevenly distributed across the population. These episodes are also going to come out at a different rate than the regular Contra episodes. So please make sure to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Stitcher so that you don't miss any. This is Amy Hamrai, and I'm thrilled to be here with Ariana Planey, who is a medical geographer, a deafblind Black woman. She is finishing her PhD at the University of Illinois, and in July 2020, will be starting a new job as Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Management at UNC Chapel Hill. Ariana's work studies equity, health, specifically in the areas of race, disability, and class. Welcome, Ariana. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, I'm so excited that we get to talk because we have um, known each other for a few years through the Disability Geography Group at the Association of American Geographers and also um, through social media and stuff. And I always just feel like you have um, really smart takes on everything that's happening, especially in the worlds of social determinants of health, disability, health geography. So you are one of the first people I thought of when I started this sort of sub-series of the podcast, um, because I'm really curious, what's your take on what's happening right now with coronavirus in terms of disability and race? I would just say first, we can't understand the disproportionate impact of, you know, COVID-19 coronavirus on, you know, Black people, Latinx people, on people with certain kinds of disability. We, we can't understand that without understanding the inequities that preceded the pandemic. Because we're seeing a lot of takes from people who are, you know, experts in some, some way, and they're just expressing shock and dismay at the fact that people who are already disproportionately predisposed to poor health outcomes because of the social arrangement, uh, because of these inequitable distributions of social resources that you know foster and preserve and enable life, right? But these inequitable distributions preceded the pandemic, and now they're worsening outcomes for the people who are already disadvantaged before the pandemic. So. I, I would say first, we have to understand that this, like the, the, the people who are bearing the brunt, or the people were, the people bearing the brunt of the coronavirus are also the people who were bearing the brunt before this pandemic. 
so we can't just suddenly care, you know, like that care shouldn't stop when the pandemic ends. Um, and I'm not sure, quite sure we are seeing care, especially when we're talking about, um, there's, you know, when we saw the, the number of cases among older, uh, older adults and uh, disabled people in, in, in uh, Italy, uh, there was this emergent discourse of, oh, well, we had to make this ethical choice to ration healthcare. And it's very frustrating because, one, the choice to ration healthcare isn't merely ethical. Um, ethics is not a, a outside of or above the social arrangement that do predispose particular groups to shorter lives and or you know heavier comorbidity or however you want to define it. Um, and two, the need to ration also arises from pre, you know, conditions or you know arrangements that preceded the pandemic. Like uh, what we're seeing in Italy with the you know reduced healthcare capacity, that was before the pandemic. That was because of these, you know, uh, you know, IMF, World Bank, these sort of like arrangements that punish countries that have lower income. Um, you know, these are also countries that have had to have, have had to take out loans. And you can often the, con the conditions to these loans inc include reduced reductions in healthcare expenditures and also public health expenditures. And that means that you also see uh, cuts in benefits to people with, who are disabled. And this is even in relatively generous social welfare state. So, I mean, that was the, that was the groundwork before the pandemic hit. So now we're seeing like people using the example of Italy, you know, the cases, COVID cases in Italy as reasoning or justification for rationing care here in the United States or elsewhere with the idea that older adults have fewer, fewer good years left or the idea that disabled patients have, are, are already less productive or you know economically viable people, right? So the idea is that well, we should prioritize the lives of people who can go back to work after they recover. Um, and then there's a third assumption embedded there where there's the assumption that recovery means returning a return to a state of being non-disabled or able-bodied. The problem is we're also seeing, it's not quite a problem. I wouldn't say it's a problem. It's something we should adjust our expectations and anticipate. Um, we're seeing that people who are recovering from this virus um, even people who had mild symptoms are having protracted recoveries. And um, we're also like, and from the perspective of insurance companies, right, they're gonna, these are people who are gonna be undesirable in terms of, you know, the profitability of insurance companies. So, you know, even if it's, if it's like occupational or uh, disability insurance, um, we're going to see a lot more claims, and then we're also going to see insurance companies asking for bailouts because they, you know these people are a burden on their their business model. So I think there's just so much happening, and it just all goes back to um, the fact that eugenics never went away. We just see it encoded in new and well new and different ways that are coming back to haunt us in, in times of 
you know, scarcity, and because the scarcity is born of these neoliberal policies. So it's kind of, it's almost like uh, self-reinforcing, it's like the snake eating its own tail. So it's like, I guess I, I always, I kind of, like the first thought, I, when you, anyone asked me what are my thoughts on the coronavirus disability and uh, race-related inequity, racial or racism-related inequities and outcomes, it always goes back to the macro structures because that's what we're going to have to address if we want anything to better. It's not that there's anything wrong with the people who are being disproportionately affected or harmed by this pandemic. It's that social structures have set people up to be more, well, as a lot of people say, vulnerable or susceptible to worse health outcomes and worse like overall outcomes because this is going to affect people's ability to maintain their you know maintain their housing keep their job and especially when where um, employment is the main means for getting uh, health care coverage. I would I know that was a long answer. <laughs> Thank you so much for that analysis. I mean, I, I think your answer really revealed why we need health geographers to help us understand what is happening because um, it is occurring at multiple scales and there are histories and structures at play that um, are largely alighted in this moment or they're not at the forefront of analysis. Um, and so, you know, you're the first person I've ever heard talk about like the IMF loans and the effects on Italy's healthcare infrastructure. Um, that's not really an analysis I've heard anywhere else. So thank you so much for that. I want to um, go back to something that you said that was also very interesting about Italy, which is that essentially the epidemiological findings about um, older people and disabled people being uh, increase, increasingly vulnerable in Italy have led to policy decisions and triage decisions and kind of bioethical decisions in other places. So can you just say something about this relationship between epidemiological calculation and kind of projections of data and then, you know, outcomes as they get applied in other places? Because I think we've seen a few different versions of this during COVID too, with like different groups of people as well. Yeah, I would say first, everyone should read Michelle Murphy's work. I mean, just how we conceptualize and define population should not go unquestioned. And I mean, just, I can't do justice to her work, but understanding that fundamentally population is a calculative concept. And um, as we understand it now in statistics and epidemiology and economics and social sciences, how we define population is often aligned with how states define population in their very instrumental applications. Because they think of states' borders, those are understand, understood to bound economies. And people are, who are in, uh, within those economies, you want to have optimize that population within that economy, right? So you want to, this is why you see um, such stringent restrictions on who can immigrate into a country. Um, so like Canada and the US, we're seeing um, barriers erected to uh, prevent disabled people from entering those countries. Um, and like we're seeing multiple iterations of the public charge laws 
that um, try to prevent people who might take more out of the public pool of social resources than they would put in. And it's a very narrow idea of what a contribution is. So I will say first, we need to understand what a population is. We need a critical understanding of population. Because it's not just the number of people within the bound of a border, because that's never been true. Every census excludes people who are low income. Uh, every census excludes people who are, uh, who do not have, who are not citizens, or who do not have documentation that proves their right to be in that, in the country. So we cannot make the argument that a population is just simply the number of people within the nation's boundary. Um, two, there's also the, I couldn't do justice to explaining it, but there's a concept of disability adjusted life years, which is used pretty heavily by both countries. Uh, it's used for health planning, it's used for insurance and actuarial purposes. And it's basically the idea that certain conditions reduce one's quality of life and also one's likelihood of living to a certain life expectancy. And the idea is also that those same conditions also reduce the number of years that you can be productive in an economy or in a, as a, as in a, within a labor force. So, the, so that imputes an, a, um, an economic value to one's life on the basis of one's disability and health status. Um, and for these measures, the default person uh, is often a 25-year-old white man. Uh, who's considered to be non-disabled, non-disabled and doesn't have any kind of, you know, chronic condition. So the idea, the, the idea is that this default person is a young, able-bodied male person. So, you know, already we're seeing that most people would deviate from that norm. Um, so these calculations are being made based on the disability uh, adjusted life years and also um, quality quality adjusted life years, which is also penalizes older people. Um, so the idea that, well, for the purpose of triaging or rationing healthcare, uh, I like to say rationally, rationally because people like to make that talking point of, oh, well, under capitalism, we don't ration healthcare. We only ration healthcare in the communist states. And it's like, no, that's not true. Um, we're rationing healthcare when you make people pay for it. You're rationing by ability to pay. I mean, there's just so many ways of rationing healthcare, but that's the one that people overlook the most. Um, so these are being used to argue for rationing healthcare on the basis of disability status, age, um, types of diagnosis, because we're, we're even seeing this emerging discourse where Oh, well, if you have diabetes, if you have underlying conditions like diabetes and, and asthma, you're more likely to die of COVID. And it's just like, well, where are the, where are the environmental and social conditions that predispose people to diabetes and asthma? Both of these are inflammatory conditions. Both of these are born of um, environmental exposures. Both of these are also born of, oh, you can think of like poor food environment as also an environmental exposure. Um, in, uh, environmental pollution, environmental racism, um, racism related racism related stresses that that increase our cortisol levels and disrupt our you know our our body's ability to function. Um, I I heard a metaphor 
or chronic stress that made a lot of sense. It's like if you have a car and you're constantly revving the engine, you're putting stress on that on the, the system and the system will eventually break down. Um, and you can think about our bodies being under you know, chronic and constant stress, right? You can think about how that affects our, our how we can function as, as people, as you know, not just as bodies, but as people. Um, so because that's already, that's already the backdrop, it, it goes back to the, what's, what we're already, how was life distributed already before the pandemic? Um, so now we're seeing people in, in a bleak way of saying that people who are sick and disabled, people who are black, people who are Latinx, people who are already predisposed to poor health outcomes because of social condition. Because um, we are we're already seeing them saying these people are less deserving of life. These people should not be given an intervention. Like we, I've already heard of a couple of cases, I don't remember where, um, where doctors presumptively um, put a DNR in patient's file. And the idea just being that, oh, well, this person has, you know, this person's autistic. Um, you know, what quality of life would they have if they, if they had to recover from COVID? You know, well, is the intervention worth it? And these are the wrong questions. Doctors should not be asking these questions. That's not their job. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to repeat something that you said that was, to me, it's like the central question here is, how was life distributed prior to the pandemic? Um, so can you say more from your perspective as a health geographer for people who are maybe like um, not as familiar with ideas about uh, health equity and distribution um, on the basis of race and disability and also region and things like that about how life was distributed prior to the pandemic? Yeah. Um, but before the pandemic, we saw what should be pretty damning inequities in health status and healthcare quality and access um, by, uh, at, the, uh, you know, at the axis of you know, assigned race, ethnicity, citizenship status, disability status, um, and even on the basis of the way you live. Um, I know there's a, there's a popular refrain in public health circles where you know, disparity has become just sort of hot buzzword, you know, where they say, oh, your zip code determines your life expectancy. And that's not true. Um, it reflects a sort of a historical and sort of mechanistic understanding of the relationship between places and health and health outcomes. Because um, when we're talking about zip codes too, we're also talking about postal routes, which don't necessarily reflect neighborhoods. They reflect how, one particular arm of the government demarcates space. It's not the same thing as a neighborhood. Or it's not the same thing as a place. Um, but the idea that your zip code determines your life expectancy completely elides all of these underlying structural factors that shape um, health, equi you know, health inequities um, or that produce health inequities. Like, um, 
majority black zip codes. Those are there by design for the most part. Uh, you know, you have this history of redlining, restrictive covenants, and other forms of discrimination in housing that so so socially sorted people by race, ethnicity, class, in space. So it's like it's social sorting in space by design to maintain a social, a social structure, a race, white supremacist, capitalist, um, social structure, white supremacist, capitalist, I, th I guess racist, but if you want to make it clear, racist, social structure. So, and then along with that, you also had healthcare systems that planned their distribution of the facilities around who lived where. Because healthcare systems, um, they, they locate their facilities where uh, there's higher health, health, household incomes, generally healthier populations, um, the term they often use is payer mix, so they want uh, a mix of commercially or privately insured patients, mostly patients who have insurance through their employer, so they're generally working age people, so there, there's also a bias against um, areas that have older populations, because Medicare, which uh, covers people over 65 in the U.S., um, has lower reimbursement rates compared with commercial insurance plans. So people who are working age are much more desirable patient, uh, a more, much more desirable patient base for healthcare systems. Um, but that's like that's two examples: housing and healthcare. Um, and then on top of that, you, where you see the shortages of healthcare facilities or, you know, inaccessible healthcare facilities, you also see far fewer um, grocers that carry um, healthier foods. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's just all this just sort of compound disadvantage. And so just imagine, you know, I mean, some of us, many of us listening don't have to imagine. But if you think about it, think it through, you know, these are people who have, who are more pre- um, and also, uh, I'm going to circle back to the, the example of racial segregation, racial and ethnic segregation. Racial and ethnic segregation is very closely linked with environmental racism. So this is where you get like the siting of, uh, you know, facility locations for um, known, in, like for facilities by, you know, companies and industry that are known to pollute. Um, you get the placement of landfills or factories or so wherever any, any number of facilities or incinerators for, is a big one because um, landfills have become, are full, are nearly full in the United States. So we're, um, the incinerator industry is becoming a, a one, way, one way that is going to catch, one industry that's going to actually catch the excess uh, from landfills. So, but those are disproportionately located in Black and Latin neighborhoods. Um, and that means they're exposed to those, um, you know, particulate pollution. And that means, you know, worse outcome, respiratory outcomes, asthma, and so forth. So, we can't talk about health in place without understanding these historical and social and political processes that sort people in place by race, ethnicity, class, and also distrib distribute resources in place relative to where people are. Um, and that's the underlying sort of like that, that's the sort of, that's what's patterning the outcomes that we're seeing in terms of this pandemic too. Because the people we are, we're seeing, um, 
more severe cases in people who have respiratory conditions. Uh, we're also seeing more severe cases in places that have histories of environmental racism. Um, we're seeing more severe cases in people who already have uh, chronic conditions who may have or may have been uh, immunocompromised and that's also associated with environmental racism. So like, there's all these ways that the that placemaking policy, uh, discrimin you know, these ways that discrimination by group membership or difference, you know, how we are differentiated on the basis of race, ethnicity, class, disability status. There's all these ways that it's manifesting as worse outcomes amid this pandemic. So I don't know if that touched, answered the question. Yeah, that was perfect. Thank you. Um, so one of the things I'm wondering about too is um, in terms of who, like going back to these eugenic ideas, like whose death is taken for granted or vulnerability is taken for granted and whose is um, treated as like uh, not inevitable and something I've been thinking about a lot. And this goes to something you said very clearly earlier too, is that, you know, this is a case where a lot of people are becoming disabled if they weren't disabled already. And yet the issue of disability is so decentered. Um, in like the analysis, right? So like what can you, do you have any thoughts about that? I have lots of thoughts. Um, what I'm seeing is particularly among healthcare workers, physicians especially, I'm seeing it's, a, it's sort of a two-sides of the same coin. One, there's this emerging discourse that treats patients who have COVID or, or maybe asymptomatic, but not, uh, you know, so they may be in, um, have been exposed to COVID or maybe infected with COVID, the, the SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID. They may be infected, but they do not have, they do not dis, uh, dis, display the symptoms. So there's this emerging discourse that treats these patients as a threat to these healthcare workers. Um, but they don't necessarily think it through and think about the facility, the healthcare facility, healthcare system as an ecosystem where uh, some of these people were already disadvantaged and left behind by the healthcare system. Um, and two, uh, care provision is a relation, it's a relationship. Um, so our well-being is like in inextricably related. But you can't just say that patients are a danger to healthcare workers' health. Health, I mean, it goes the other way. There's there hospital-acquired infections that come from contact with healthcare workers, um, because healthcare workers are the common point of contact between everyone in a healthcare facility. Um, so the idea that patients are an special danger to healthcare workers is self-serving and self-centered. Um, I know someone not gonna like I said that, but um, and then related to that is another discourse I'm seeing where healthcare workers who contracted the virus and uh, you know have not now recovered from COVID are telling their stories. They're telling their stories of having acquired these disabilities, even though they they don't name it as a disability. But the story is one of betrayal. Because the idea is that physicians, particularly physicians, are not disabled. You, it's already difficult to enter that profession if you're a disabled person. 
um, the idea that you know this, these traditions have acquired this virus in part possibly because they are in contact with patients who had the virus and now they are sick people. They Now they inhabit this sick role that they've never really had to think much about as physicians. And now they have to navigate a system that is hostile to sick and disabled people. And now they feel betrayed. Um, and there's almost just, maybe they're not there yet, but almost a refusal to recognize their role as physicians in perpetuating that system that punishes or puts more work on sick and disabled people to prove that they're sick and disabled, um, to prove that they're deserving of you know certain social supports. Um, you know, there's this concept of desert, like you have to deserve the social investment that you reap, that you draw from. Um, so. I mean, that's, I know this is a fairly narrow slide, but this is, these are two narratives that are kind of two sides of the clean coin that I've noticed. Thank you so much for pointing those out. Um, I'd noticed them in a way, but the way that you frame them is really helpful then for also understanding how medical ableism continues to be so pervasive um, and deadly and harmful um, in ways that then bounce back into those structures that we were talking about before and kind of shore them up. Um, and so I really hope that people who are listening to this podcast and reading the transcript um, take that to heart as, you know, this shouldn't be a story that's just about the um, uncomplicated and unproblematic uh, work of healthcare workers, like in this moment, it really should be about paying attention to the relationships um, between healthcare systems and people who are put at risk by healthcare systems um, and as a matter of ableism and like labor issues and things like that. So I'm wondering um, if we can kind of go in a more hopeful direction. Are there any projects um, networks, solidarities that you want to signal boost that you think are doing a good job right now and that could be things to learn from? Yeah, um, one of my favorite people on the planet, Miriama Kabe, um, Kaba, um, she is, her, on Twitter, her handle is Prison Culture. She's been organizing or at least sort of organizing but also signal boosting a lot of mutual aid projects. Um, and so like these involve um, bail bond, uh, bail bond fund, bail funds, um, food, uh, what's it? food bank fund, um, housing. So it's like all of these different dimensions of how people have been affected in the wake of this pandemic. Cause it's not just the, the virus, it's like job losses, um, insecurity, um, you know, cause we're seeing rather than absorb these uncertainties, we're seeing a large institution just shake off the people who are you know, who are already contingent or otherwise marginalized, you know, conditionally accepted even. So there's a lot of really important mutual aid work that's going on. And I would recommend, um, I've been signal boosting a lot of um, these projects from um, Prison Culture or Miriam Akaba's Twitter account and su supporting them myself. But really, it's been really great to see this outpouring of 
it, it was already there, but it's really great to see just outpouring of work in mutual aid um, because we are all we have. I mean, if we don't have each other, who, who has us? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for signal boosting that. Um, a few episodes after yours in this series will be uh, two folks from the Disability Justice Culture Club um, who've been doing mutual aid in the Bay Area around wildfires and now around COVID-19. And um, really is a moment where, as you say, our interdependence and necessity for interdependence is so highlighted and we have all these great examples to learn from. Are there any final thoughts that you want to share? Anything we haven't covered yet? Oh, um, I think I've talked enough. I mean, thank you so much for having me on, on your podcast. I mean, you've had some really amazing guests or co-hosts on your show. So, Oh, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. And I'm always just um, so thrilled by your analysis is so sharp. And also you do such a good job of synthesizing things in a way that helps make them make more sense. And um, I wish I could just like record you talking about everything and then give that as reading to my students because it would be, uh, that would be really good. And I'm sure that your students at UNC Chapel Hill in the coming semesters will be very excited to have you as a professor too. Yeah. Um, well, that might be a good place for us to wrap up. Thanks so much, Ariana. It's been great having you. Thank you. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.